All righty, folks, welcome back to the Mushing Alaska podcast. We're your hosts, Brendan and Sean, and we're excited for this next episode. We've got a special guest on, and I'm going to turn it over to Sean to give a little introduction. Yeah, welcome, Gerhardt T. Art. Uh, I did a ride veteran. Oh, just let that resonate for a second. <laughs> Thank you for uh, having me. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, a quick introduction i'm sure you've told your story once or twice but this uh, gerhardt's you know ran the iditarod now this is his second race he him and i have a somewhat similar first race experience getting to one of the final runs of the race and then having the conditions uh kind of stunts you and then coming back and running it again and uh getting to the finish line and uh man that must have been a pretty pretty special feeling like almost in a way, I feel like it's even sweeter having had that, you know, coming just a little short and then coming back to redeem. It's almost sweeter than just finishing it the first time. You know, that it's like I almost in a way I kind of recommend like you should scratch your first time just so that you can experience failure and then build yourself back up. You know, Sean, I, I that word you used, sweet, I it hit me. You're right. Um, when I left safety, I was around about 15 miles away from Nome. I broke down emotionally. Man, I was, luckily I was alone and just the dogs in front of me and I was bawling my eyes out. My tears was freezing on my cheeks and I could taste Nome. I said, man, and I was thinking back from to last year and said, this is what it takes. The word sweet, I could not have described it better. You need to have some kind of toughness, roughness, some difficulties, not making it the first because the victory of the second one, that is so sweet. Thank you for using those words. I'm going to use it now. I'm going to steal your words. Sweet. I just use that word way too much. It's like, you know, I just <laughs> refer to things as sweet. So I appreciate you giving me some credit. I thought I would have to say some kind of fancy word that's like, you know, uh, I don't know, that has like six syllables in it or something. But no, no we, stay, we, we, we stick to plain English. All right. Sweet. That's and we, good. And remember, I'm from Africa. English is not my first language. That's true. Yeah. First South African. You might be like, is there even an anyone from the continent of Africa that has done this? Or oh, yeah, yeah, you will go down in histories. There's a musher, I think it did it in the early 70s. A mouth Fred Agree. He was from Zimbabwe. That's one country, just one of the countries north of South Africa. I think he did it in the 70s. He lives in uh, Homer, Alaska. Okay, nice. We got zimbabwe representing in the iditarod that's great zimbabwe yeah heck yeah so now you're like in alaska still it's not i'm glad to hear that you're in alaska you know i was i know you're probably gonna have some going down to south africa or over and down to south africa and uh sometime soon but it's cool um that you're still here you're not like all right i got to the finish line see you never I'm I'm home, I'm going home, you know. No, you're like I guess I'm still here with the dogs. You got your wife is up here in uh, Sterling, Alaska, at, at Mitch's yeah. place, which is on the Kenai Peninsula, one of the most uh, amazing places 
in, the, in one of the most amazing zones in Alaska is the Kenai Peninsula. Um, and so, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're still, you're, you're here, but what's uh like, I mean, I saw a two minute interview of you at the finish line and they were like, Hey, you know, how was the trail? What was so hard about it? And you're like, dude, like, you think I'm going to be able to answer this question in like 40 seconds, <laughs> you know? And, and then, uh, so I, I'm asking you the same question, but like, you know, I think the most notable thing about your race was that you weren't really in the back of the pack. You were like in the middle of the pack and you had some of the fastest run times. I, I know the middle and the end of the race, which is like, probably from a musher's perspective, one of the most like satisfying things that you could ever experience is being late in a race with a fast dog team. I mean, that's just fun. It is. It is. I was uh, running to the minute on my run rest schedule, which uh, Mitch, uh, Mitch uh, CV, which he set up for me. And uh, it was a, a weird and wonderful experience coming to a checkpoint and everyone is leaving and you're the only one there. And uh, I had no fear. I had no concerns. I had the schedule. He said on this schedule, you will be back of the pack for a long time. Just keep to the schedule and then you're moving up. Um, I'll come ask me the question again, what it feels like to be last in the checkpoint. But um, I was catching up on mushrooms. I mean, the Barrington twins was right ahead of me. I reached Caltech and they told me um, the Barrington twins and uh, Mike Williams just left around about 15 minutes ago. I said, holy smokes, I'm getting closer. Uh, from Caltech to Unalakleet. When I got to Unalakleet, I, I uh, came in and I got my dogs bedding down and there's the Barrington twins and Mike Williams, they getting ready to leave. So, oh, I'm getting closer. And uh, then when I hit Shaktula, when I got to Shaktulik, um, they were still camping, no one in sight, but then a storm came up and they left I mean, I just walked into the checkpoint, into the uh, uh, with the sleeping quarters, and they came out. They um, they wanted to leave, or they planned to leave before the storm actually hit. So I stayed twenty nine hours in Shaktulik. Wow. I got hold up for twenty nine hours in Shaktulik due to my due to that storm. And then the back of the pack, they caught up with me, and uh, that's where me and Bridget had. Uh, I had a serious conversation with Bridget. I told her, Bridget, you and I should be at least a hundred miles apart in this race. And she looked at me laughing. He said, why? I said, what is going on outside? She said, it's a storm. I said, yes. Are we together? She said, yes. I said, what happened the previous 700 miles when we were a hundred miles apart? There was no storm. We should not run together. Every time you and I run together, we we get hunkered down in a storm. That was the humor in the situation there. <laughs> um, but then then I lost. Um, and after the like twenty nine hour layover uh, with due to the storm in Shaktulik, man, there's no way you can catch anyone in two hundred fifty miles or two hundred miles um, with a with a twenty four hour. Uh, 
being behind 24 hours. So I just yeah. stay to the schedule. Nice. Yeah. The, uh, the so Bridget, and, um, you know, if you, if you didn't catch that for anybody that she and Gerhard and maybe some other mushers last year, yeah, which, uh, they were all together in that coastal storm that ended their race 50 miles shy of the finish line. So to see Bridget, yeah, that's funny. You see Bridget at Shaq Tulip and you're like, no, no, no. You are not who I want to see. <laughs> no, okay. get away. Move on or whatever. No. We're not supposed to be together. <laughs> Every time there is a windstorm holding us down. Oh, man. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I love to see, like, I mean, at one point, 200 to 300 miles into the race, I, mean, I, I, I remember at some point remarking, like, oh boy, Gerhardt, you're like pretty, pretty far back. Like, I hope you know everything's good. And you know, at that point, Bailey, uh, Greg, Greg Vitello yeah. was back there. And I'm like, these guys, you know, they got well, then little do I know, this is all part of the master Gerhardt and Mitch plan. And you would be just just a freight train uh getting to the coast. And uh gosh, I mean. That's like, it's almost just like you've a graduation into like, dude, you're, I, I feel like you've at some point when I met you, you were like, you know, training for your first Iditarod, you're, you know, and that, it, that in, the inexperience was, was good, you know, because you have yeah. that excitement. Yeah. And now I feel like after what, you know, following you this year, you're like a veteran, like, you, I mean, obviously you are an Iditarod veteran, but like, it seemed like you just knew what you were doing out there. Like you, you know, you probably, you have, it's it, the way that you're talking about your experience. It seems you just have confidence in your ability to assess the situation, take care of your dogs. You know, it's not as simple as just resting for five hours and that's all you got to do. You know, there's, there's so much more finer tuning going into, you know, how you're taking care of your dogs and, you know, getting them to sleep as quickly as you can. And, it just seems like you've like graduated into being like you're 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 not just like a bucket lister you know you're like I, i'm i'm a musher dude i'm like i'm a i did a ride veteran what up it's, it, it's true what you said on the second one um it's when i reflect back to the military everything you do is a drill uh you jump from a helicopter or aeroplane it's a drill you uh do fire and movement it's a drill and you rescue someone to drill in the second I did rod, I hardly think um, anything to do in a checkpoint. You just do it automatically and do it with calmness and um, and uh, just get it done and get your sleep. And I slept much less on this I did rod than the first I did rod. It's um, I wasn't this tired. I didn't get sleep deprived. Um, but yeah, as, as you say, you just go in. You go through the motions. And I must give you credit, uh, reflecting back the one night you sat there on the couch um, waiting for Dallas to play cribbage. Mm -hmm. And I brought out my entire winter closet, parkas, anoraks, long john socks, and you looked at me and I was worried and uh, am I gonna get cold? And you looked at the clothes and you said, hey man, you'll be just fine in that. And that's exactly the same clothes I wore on this one and last year's one. So thank you for giving that confidence. But I also wanna come back to you. Um, 
my puppy team, this was, this team was much, much stronger than my two-year-olds I had last year. Just for example, I was um, in Iditarod. You, you hear Masha's dog and everything from Iditarod checkpoint to uh, Shagaluk. Um, Brent did it in seven hours and 17 minutes, I think. Man, and I had two drivers on there, uh, two youngsters, um, Oscar and Willie, and they started, they started to drive, and they started to drive. And I look at my watch, and I look at my GPS, and I look at my watch, and I look at my GPS. And I was actually, I was on my drag mat going up those hills with their dogs. But coming you, my team was strong, and I was like, I was changing, chasing Brand Sass, and I think, I think under correction, I might have had the fastest time for my body with those. Uh, so yeah, I had a strong team and I just stuck to the schedule. Is that that run from my understanding, who was I talking? I don't remember who I was talking to. Oh, uh, maybe it was Eddie. And uh <clears throat> you saying that's like one of the hillier runs to oh oh yeah. Oh it's it's as hilly, it's normally on the Idetro trail. Um, referring to leaving Yuna Laclit. Okay, let's leave Yuna Laclit and you go to Shaktulik. We climb mountains for four and a half to four hours and 45 minutes. You climb mountains. But when you go up, it's wide and it's straight. Going from Rainy Pass to uh, Rhone before you get the Delzal Gorge. You go up the highest uh, point in, on the Idetra Trail. It's walking. It's all snaky, narrow, and you hit every single tree that you can get on that trail. It, it's just amazing. It's scary and amazing. Why am I telling you this story? I don't know. Sean, ask me a question. Yeah, I'm just... <laughs> well, um. Gosh, you 24 where? I 24 in McGrath, same as last year, yeah. McGrath. Dude, McGrath, was, was it's like the most comfortable setup to continent. I've 24 there too. But yeah, those village, I, I, I honestly, dude, I'm scared. When I see people 24ing and Ofer, maybe I'm missing out on something. But, you know, when I was there the year, it was just like you're like in a tent with like a propane heater. And there's like, they wouldn't, maybe it was because of the COVID or whatever. They wouldn't let, let me in any of the buildings. Maybe I'm missing out, but man, the comfort, creature comforts of McGrath and the Man, I, I don't understand. I've heard that someone uh, did his 24 in Iditarod. Yeah, Wade. Yeah, Wade Myers. Uh, man, <laughs> there's no water. There's no sleeping place. Um, why are you on a 24? Why? I, I don't understand. I'm a Kushimasha. I, I like, and the best thing this year being last in the pack, man, I've got to pick a bed. I, they places to sleep. I had inside, there's food left over. It was like being in a, uh, a holiday resort in McGrath. It was really, really nice being back in the pack. Heck yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I, I'm sure Wade, you know, firstly, he was by himself at I did a ride in the front of the pack for yeah. at least like 12 hours of his yeah. 24. 
Um, and I, from my re- recollection, there is a bunkhouse there that's like heated and a bunch of beds and stuff. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, you know, definitely not like, you know, just charging ports everywhere. Yeah, you, know, you can ch- like McGrath has just like outlets everywhere. You can just charge all your things. You know, everything and you, and you you get up in your socks and you put your food in the microwave and you you don't have mm-hmm. to go out to get food or there's water for you. I mean, I fed my dogs at least four hot meals on my 24. And it's just everything is so easy and it's just comfortable in my grass. Mm. So, Gerhard, I want to take it back to the kind of like the front of the, the beginning of the race. So, yeah. like those first few days, there was a lot of heat. So I'm just curious, you know, what was that effect on either your schedule or, you know, how did the dogs handle that? Actually, the dogs handled it quite well and they did not have much effect on my schedule. I got to Finger Lake, I think the Monday afternoon. No, yeah, the Monday afternoon or Monday mid-morning, I got to Finger Lake and I was camping there. I got there around about 11, stayed for six. I left around about five o'clock again. It was warm. Me and Jason Mackey was there and Key uh, and some and Mike was there and we all, they were all, they planned to leave. So they actually stayed longer due to the heat. But when five o'clock came, it was cooling down. So that did not affect me. However, the next day, uh, Finger Lake to Roan. Um, I was leaving Roan at 11 o'clock in the morning and it mm. was warm. And Roan, you go through the, um, the burn where there's no snow and dirt. Um, my dogs, I was worried at a point and I said, oh, okay, this might be too warm. And then I realized we train a lot and the dogs are conditioned. I just took it slower and I gave him lots and lots of rest. I mean, long rest. I didn't stop for a minute or two. I'll stop for five minutes and let them play wherever they snow, let them play and make it funny for them. And that didn't affect them at all. I was actually quite surprised and happy and lucky there. Yeah, you know, that's something that is a really interesting like mental battle that you have because oftentimes the dogs like what you perceive the dogs okay how can i explain this well you're sitting there on the sled and you're thinking it's too hot for the dogs and oftentimes when you're like gosh this is just this is tough i don't think you know that when you're having those thoughts it's often like you're not even 40% of the way to where it actually would be tough for the dogs. It's like, it's your, it's your analysis and you thinking, Oh, this must be like, I can't run, you know, 50 miles. So, you know, Oh, this must be hard on them. And then in reality, the dogs are like, dude, we're, we're chilling. We're going to go slow. We're going to take, we're going to, we're going to manage ourselves. If you just coach, if you can just give us a break the next patch of snow that you find. And that's what you're doing. And the burn is you're just, you, you need, when it's hot out, they need to cool off in the snow. They need to eat, uh, hydrate and hydration is like the number one thing. If like, you can't have your dogs get dehydrated. And so when you're, there's no snow, there's no water, right? So you, you, uh, there's a couple of little trickle creeks that you cross uh, a burn. There's a couple of patches of snow you run into and yeah, you make those 
little breaks in your run count. But that's like what I, from in my experience as a musher, I'd always think like, oh yeah, I was planning on giving a five hour rest, but I, I really think that they need a six hour rest. And it was mostly just my thinking that they need it. But in reality, they're doing just fine. And I'm just getting it in my head games, you know, and that's that you're playing this head game with like, do the dogs need the rest or is it me thinking that they need it? Yeah. And they really are doing totally fine. You know, it's like, that's a just this everlasting dance. I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but. <laughs> it's so many times um, in during my training and my qualifiers working with uh, uh, Mitch CV, he said, don't let your human especially when you're leaving a checkpoint. Wait, um, Gerhardt, real quick. You, for me, you cut out real quick. What did Mitch yeah. say? Mitch said, do not let your human emotions get involved. Mm. Like you sit there on the sled, man, it's, it, it, is it too warm or not? And you look down at the dogs and the tugs are tight. You're standing on your drag mat for, with both feet. And we've been already 30 miles away from Rome. Um, it's just a different ball game. It's um, when it's good, when it's 10 below or when it's uh, 10 degrees or zero and there's enough snow, there's not a lot of uh, thinking you got to do. But when it gets warm or when it gets very cold, you got to put on your thinking cap and, uh, and work with that. Work with experience, work with what you've heard, work with what you have seen, work with what you do see and feel in front of you. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's that. You got to be careful when you're running dogs at 40 miles in, or 40 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, it's yeah. uh yeah, things can can you can work them a little too hard yeah. uh, or not give them enough breaks or not keep them hydrated. Um, and you do your best to run them at night. But, you know, you eventually you got to run during the day. You can't just yeah. rest for nine hours straight every day. So, uh, you know that's a tough one. And then when you're, it's cold out, you're thinking, you know, I got to get coats on the dogs. I got to protect their bellies, which the, the wind is just funneling through the front legs of the dogs. And then it crashes. The wind will hit. And even if it's not windy, they're running yeah. 10 miles an hour. So there's going to be at least 10 miles an hour of wind resistance yeah. and it channels through the front of your legs, uh, the dog's legs, and it'll, you know, hit their flanks. Um, their stomachs and so you have to put the proper protection and they and you have that kind of gear that you add to the coat at those temperatures yeah. and those conditions and of course like if it gets minus 40 like the typically your the dogs can take the scoops of snow and hydrate and cool off but at minus 40 that snow is really hard and crispy and the dogs lose interest in scooping snow so you yeah. have to be even more conscious of that hydration in their meals and in their snacks and because the you know you can dogs can skip a meal it's not the end of the world as long as they're drinking yeah. and eating snow and then if but if you end up getting a dog dehydrated then they're not going to eat then you're sending them home you know and yeah. so, so true. yeah but uh so you're what are you thinking just real quick I, i've been thinking about this for a second have, are you are going to be following the co-bucket all that starts tomorrow? Are you have any interest in that? You know, what, what's going on? Uh, yeah. 
I see Bailey Vitello is uh, he's entered the Coburg. Man, that kid has got too much energy at the checkpoints. Just looking at him, he made he made me tired. I just had a what a good kid. He's got he never sl- he never slept. I've never seen him slept at any checkpoint. Man, that kid and all the luck for him in the Coburg. Dude, I got a Bailey Vitello story. He came and visited Dallas's. And, you know, he was there for about 36 hours or so. He was adopting a few dogs and he, we had this, uh, you know, 47 foot trailer that has his Dallas's famous indoor treadmill yeah. that's in a cooler or whatever, you know. And there was like a, a massive amount of snow, like at least three feet of like hard packed snow. And this is like late in the winter. So it's like, you know, February or something. And uh, he just like went up there by himself and removed like, I don't know how many gigatons of snow from that. (laughs) And like, no one asked him to do it. He just was like, yeah, I'm going to go do this. And we were just like, you know, we'd be doing chores and just kind of look at him. And he's just like, you know, I I feel, I don't even know this is true, but I feel like he just like had his shirt off and he's just sitting there. (laughs) for like three hours straight, you know, which would cripple me in every way physically. And he right. was just like, all right, what do you guys need me to do next? And I'm like, man, he, where? I met up with him, uh, I think, in Iditarod. And uh, when I left Roan, his dad, oh, I was on my way getting ready to leave. And his dad, Greg, came in. And uh, that's why Okay, to leave, and uh, his dad came in, and his dad was inside in the building, and his dad has got the special made meals. I don't know, but I think Mike Ellis made the meals, or some grand chef made these vacuum packed meals, and he was explaining, and he was surrounded by all the females of the McGrath checkpoint. So I looked, and he's Italian, so Bailey asked me. Um, at a future checkpoint, when's the last time you've seen my dad? And uh, I said in McGrath, and he said, how's my dad doing? I said, he's as happy as pig and shit. And he said, why? I said, I see I see in Italian when I see in Italian, he was surrounded by beautiful women. He was just laughing and having a great time. Mm-hmm. And Bailey laughed and he said, well, yep, that's my dad. <laughs> but I could see oh, the old man. man he was just dishing out meals and I I was like oh well he's having a great time that's amazing yeah that, that that's a lot of energy coming from Bailey and uh hopefully Greg can get get uh back back yeah. in and get ready uh for the next race uh the next year in a couple years um so yeah those guys Go ahead, Brennan. Yeah, I was just going to say, you brought up the Kobuk. Uh, just let's go there for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at the names in the race. Who is there? Are there, who are your favorites? Who is, who would you put in the top two or three to, to win it or expectation wise? I, I don't have any expectations of anyone. Um, I don't have a favorite Masha to actually win it. Um, I'm just going to keep an eye on uh, Jeff. And then uh, Bailey and, and and see what those do because I spend the most time with those two on the Iditarod trails and I know them the best um, of the time spent on the Iditarod trails. So those people will be the two marshes I'm going to keep my eyes open. Yeah, Jeff Dieter and yeah, uh, Jeff Dieter. Bailey Bailey Vitello. 
Yeah, that's exciting. You know, Jeff and Katie Joe seem to have like a pretty fun kind of thing going on. Where I'm, where, I'm glad. Know, I'm glad Katie had a good run this year. She also she had was, some of the faster run times as well. Yeah, because she was one of those. Uh, she was also one of the six that got uh, stuck in the Topcock Hills last year with us when we uh, had to scratch from the race 50 miles from the finish line. Yeah, and now you guys, now you guys are. I mean, that was like in some. Uh, yeah, that's just like now we got belt buckles. Yeah, you got your belt buckles. You know, you got you you. I I appreciate how many people got to Shaq Tulik, saw that there was a storm, and you're just like, yeah, we're gonna chill here for 29 hours. That sounds, <laughs> it's like after going through what you did last year, it's like no brainer. You know, there's no it, like it, it was a no brainer. There was another musher, and I don't know what she was getting worried, and uh, it's just like when we were stuck in a storm last year, and. Uh, I just told her, relax, go sleep, feed your dog, sleep as much as you possible. Feed is nothing you can do right now outside in that storm, but you got to bank your rest and you got to feed and hydrate your dogs as much as possible. This is a good thing. And that brought a little bit of calmness to her, I think. I, you know, when I think of a storm on the coast, the first thing that pops into my head is Libby Riddles winning the Iditarod when you have like 17 mushers that all are waiting in Shaq Tulik or whatever. And she's like, guys being a bunch of weenies, I'm going out there. And she goes out and wins the race. And, uh, and so like, you know, when I'm on the coast, I'm thinking, oh yeah, like I could beast mode it through this storm. And then you realize, oh, hold on one second. Uh, all these like badass mushers that have run the Iditarod like 13 times, they also are, they know, all right, I'm not going in this shit, you know? And, uh, there's just like a certain level that it doesn't matter how much grit you have, how well-trained your dogs are and how good a shape they're in and whatever. There's, there is a tier that 2014 Jeff King and, you know, or, uh, yeah, you know, what you guys went through last year, um, the Shaq Tulik storm that held up you and Deke and all these other mushers, you know, there's just like this certain level of wind that you're just like, I'm not fucking with this. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's just not even, like, you cannot get through they, that. They, as true as you said, there are certain conditions out there you and look at you got to make a decision of the information you have at hand at that point it's it's just you got to make a call and, and and you feel it some i mean you feel it out there you 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 have a sense that sixth sense sense in you um you feel it yeah you feel it. shall i go ahead or shall i go or shall i stay and it is like, you just say like, yeah, you know, we stayed 29 hours, but like <laughs> I've, I've stayed, you know, in white mountain, I, we stayed way past our eight hours and yeah. I, I just like, it's not a very relaxing 29 hours. I know you were like telling people to calm down and stuff or whatever, or like saying like, Hey, relax, you know, feed your dogs, get some rest. But at the same time, you're also no. like, should I leave now? Should I leave in like a yeah. couple hours? Like it's supposed to die down. Should I wait for it to actually die down or wait till it's predicted to die down? I, I, you know? can, 
I can say that um, that uh, hold of the 29 hours in Shaktulik, I my team had good momentum. I had a very, very strong pop team. If I stayed six in Shaktulik, I would have placed very, very close to 20 or below 20. And yeah, how bad was the storm? Like what was, what was going on? Like how, give me some numbers. Yeah. Uh, the airport in a Shaktulik said the winds was uh, up to 45 miles an hour with zero visibility and uh, gusts up to 50. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, Deke was describing because he went three miles past the shelter yeah. cabin out onto the Norton Sound and said that he couldn't see his lead he dogs or his swing dogs. I mean, we're just standing, standing in the Shaktulik uh, checkpoint, uh, looking across. I mean, you, 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 you could hardly see because you could cross that road before you go out on the sea from the checkpoint, and uh, sometimes you could not even see the road. Yeah, yeah, and then dogs get confused. They don't know where they're going if they, they can't see, know. and the trail's blown in, and you don't, you can't see the markers. You, it's like you're just totally on. Uh, this is you're just like in a snow globe of wind and grayness and, and whiteout. And, uh, is there's just like nothing that you can see in any direction. So there's no reference. If like, am I heading, I guess you could get a compass out or some shit. I don't know, but I never use a compass out there. So I can't even remember how a compass works. So a compass wouldn't have helped me a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, uh, we're not, we're not quite Lewis and Clark out there. Uh, you know, trying to navigate our way. It's a nice laid out trail usually, but you still had some wins on the coast. I'm sure. What was like, you know, what was uh, your favorite coastal run? Uh, favorite coastal Gerhard was Gerhard from a. Gerhard, if you could hear me real quick, if you could try turning your video off, we're having some difficulty hearing you. No, um, you want my video off? Just see if that works. If that helps, see if that a helps bit. a little bit because you you can kind of cut out a little bit. Okay, is is it better? It is so far. Yep. Yeah. Okay, the best one I had from, okay, from Shaktuli to Koyak, we had a little bit of wind, but the storm wasn't, after the storm died, there was still winds, but we could have gone through. And then um, Koyak through to Elam, I had a great run, but the best run was from Elam to White Mountain through Golovan Bay. Because last year, um, the trail, no year, I mean, I speak like a veteran, but I'm just a, a simple rookie from Africa doing that, uh, doing the Iditarod. Um, same, same here. I'm also speak like a veteran and I'm just <laughs> from Atlanta. So I'm just talking out of my ass most of the time. But, but, but both of us can, uh, both of us have our, I've got our belt buckle now, but um, I've only done it two years and um, not, I cannot compare any trails which that they are exactly the same for the two years. Last year was completely different leaving um, Elam to White Mountain. There by Gullivan Bay, it was glare ice. I mean, it was just straight, flat, glare ice. This year, they, earlier this year, they had a storm there. 
and um, and it was like shards of ice, ice build up, ice hills and 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 and, and crevices, and you and it's, and you got a. It was twisty and turny as they tried to make the trail. It wasn't straight, so that was a nice run. Um, it's it's just breaking that boredness of this long straight from Golovin up to get to the mountains to White Mountain again. So I like that piece of run. That yeah, I recall that run being like straight and nope. and almost uh, downhill. But uh, mm. yeah, that's not that's not sound familiar. <laughs> not, not this year. Last year, I mean, this was like glare ice and um, straight to the mountains or to the other side of the bay. But this year it was uh, there's a certain word I don't know what they use when the uh, the coast gets the ice gets broken up. Oh, jumble ice and stuff. yeah, that's the word. That's the word jumble ice, and uh, the trail was snaky. And um, then you're on glare ice for a short bit. Then you're on blown in snow, and then you go over bumps and stuff. And it, it was it was nice, but it was nice. It, but the best part is of the coast. Um, I'll take that. I'll take that. But the best part for me is leaving safety. So I never got to experience the blowhole because uh, I was maybe just entering into it uh, where I ran, ran into that overflow. Um, what, did you have like a blowhole? Like it just, I don't even. Can you just say something about the blowhole? Oh, yeah. You know, um, last year we got stuck just before the blowhole, not even the blowhole. And uh, everyone has, and that put the fear of God in me with the blowhole. Man, I feared the blowhole. And on the Iditarod, I mean, God works in mysterious ways. Uh, due to dark mashing and due to my careers in Spurs, you don't go to church that much, but the Iditarod, um, it shows you you got to pray more. <laughs> so I, I never prayed so much as I did last year. I've even given the man above. Um, I'm even told to reflect back from exactly somehow we ended up exactly on the same two, three in the morning. So if you could repeat that, because you kind of uh, cut out a little bit, but you said you were praying. Oh, and- yeah. I was praying a lot and, and uh, even give, uh, gave the man above my address so he can find me. And as I said, I called my mama so many times, but she never came to help me. But coming coming back to uh, leaving White Mountain, somehow the Shaktulik holdup put us exactly on the same dates of days of the week and hours of the day as last year. Last year, our six left uh, White Mountain right about two, three in the morning. This year, it happened exactly the same. It was as if it was deja vu. And leaving White Mountain is 
and you and you, you you knew the blowhole was ahead and you also in your head you don't know what's going to happen up there um man the blowhole was as quiet as a sunday afternoon a slight breeze and that was it man it was when you hit the coast we go down on the top cock hills and you hit the coast and you're on your way to safety you said man i should pray more this actually helped someone <laughs> turned, closed, someone closed the door of uh, the blowhole there i can honestly say there were none just nice. a slight breeze we were lucky i was lucky what this is uh so this is brendan speaking um yes what is the biggest like i i've heard about the blowhole but i'm not a musher so i'm never gonna see the blowhole um what I hope you don't. <laughs> what like for for someone listening who is gonna be like me who's never gonna be out on the trail what how would you describe it what like what is so scary or intimidating or what what just if you could share more about that i guess what I know about the blowhole and what I've heard, it's a stretch of round, I'll say anything from seven to 10 miles wide, where the Arctic winds from the north gets pushed down and they channel into this topcock, the, those topcock hills and funnel th through the hills to the coast. So there is always, always strong winds. If you go through the blowhole and the winds are around about 20 miles an hour, you're lucky. It is, what I've heard, it's stronger than that constantly 24-7 during the Iditarod before and after. And that's why I say we were so damn lucky when we crossed the blowhole, someone shut that door down and there was just a slight breeze. Why? I don't know. I'm not going to complain. I don't wish for the blowhole to be there. Um, we were just lucky and uh, I'll take it. But that's what I know about the blowhole being Arctic air being funneled into that stretch of, um, of around about seven to 10 miles wide always windy and it, the wind if it's strong the you travel sometimes you travel across sections of bare ice and with that strong winds your sled doesn't have traction your dogs doesn't have traction and uh, the wind that wind will blow you into driftwood into rocks off the off the ice and you got to find the trail again it's a hard section if the blowhole is in full force does that answer your question it does. Yeah. And that helped that kind of, you did a great job of explaining like what creates the, the blowhole. And, and so, yeah, I just, you know, I've heard a lot about it, but uh, you know, and the same could be said of like a lot of other infamous areas along the, the route, you know, for someone who's never been on the trail, it's hard sometimes to imagine what you all experience out there, you know? Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell people that you go down a mountain and the trail is snaky and you got to maneuver your sled. Your dogs are hauling ass. All they want to do is they move. And, and you go down the mountains, you got to be on your drag and brake and you got to 
steer a left, you're gonna steer a right, you're gonna miss that tree, you're gonna it's a lot of things, and you're gonna think on your feet all the time. You just this the only time you can relax is basically on the Yukon. And um, when it's flat and you can sit on your sled and enjoy the scenery, most of the times for me as a rookie from Africa, it's like holy crap it's like how the hell did i just get through there and i'm still alive my sled's in one piece and my dogs are okay man it's just other some marshes veteran marshes does it year after year it's like second nature for them but it's it, it was it's it's hard for me to um to even stay upright on my sled if i can stay that that's the i remember and this is now sean talking i feel like our voices are too similar brennan I could start talking in a higher pitch voice. Yeah, so uh, I remember in 2022. No, uh, but I just remember talking to Dallas about, you know, like the best thing about the Iditarod is that no matter how shitty a run is and how like tough the trail is, like you get to the checkpoint and you're like, well, I don't have to do that again until maybe next year, if at all, you know, and uh, there's no, that was what was weird about 21. I did a ride. You like go, you like barely make it through the Dalzell Gorge. And you're like, shit, I got to pull that off again. Yeah. Uh, you, you guys had to do it twice. Yeah. But it ended up being like most things in mushing where you, the fear of you having to do whatever you think lays ahead is often way worse in your mind than it actually ends up being. That's and that's something that you can take with you, you know, through several different parts of your life, you know, just sometimes the fear that you have is much worse than it actually is going to be. Um, but I was just thinking back to like 2022, you know, you have the disappointment uh, ending, but an awesome, you know, race. Otherwise, you know, what was it like for after not getting to the finish line uh, you know, in that time, you're like, all right, I want to run it next year, but I don't know maybe if I'm going to have the chance to or not. You know, how is the funding going to work? Am I, you know, my wife has spent the whole last year to, you know, halfway across the world and I haven't gotten to spend a bunch of time with her. You know, what was running through your head? Uh, you know, it's, a, it's it's easy to look back on your experience and just be like, yep, he scratched one year and finished the next year. But like it was a long journey between the first and the second I did a ride. And what was those first couple months like after, uh, you know, your experience at the Topcock Hills? And how did you kind of reassess and re kind of gather yourself? Um, I'm going to jump around from various uh, time frames there. So you just bear with me I'll as, as things come up in my head. Um, okay, I'll start with um, after being rescued, uh, airlifted out of White Mountain. Uh, they dropped me off at the. Oh hospital. yeah, you like hurt yourself too. You yeah, had I, broke, I broke my ankle. I broke my ankle there, oh. and uh, so I got airlifted to Nome Hospital, and they checked me in. They said, "Yep, take X-rays." And said, "Yep, your ankle is uh, pretty much broken." I said, "Oh well, thank you very much." But I had friends there. And they all waited for me to come out of this room on a wheelchair, being wheeled out with a broken ankle, crutches and stuff. And I could see the look in their eyes. Um, I could put myself in their position. And uh, 
they were most probably thinking in what, in what emotional state of mind will I be failing the first attempt? And I looked at them and I smiled and I laughed and I said, boys and girls, can we just go to the first bar? I need a beer and I need a hamburger. And they, they asked me, they said, I, do you have any emotions? feeling sad, um, you want to cry if you think you failed. And I said, absolutely not. I was at the right place, wrong time. And that is the Iditarod. Mother Nature, she threw me a curveball. I like in the military, sometimes we got to retreat, but you get a, uh, you retreat, you regroup and you come back. So um, I said, I have no emotions at the point in time, stuck being stuck in Topcock, broken ankle. We made a call with the information we had at that point. So no bad feelings, no emotions, nothing. Why do I want to do, why did I do it again? 20, 20 years, this has been a dream for me, me and my wife. 20 years, and I always tell kids and I always tell people, if you have a dream, go pursue your dream. But do not think your dream will come if you do not make sacrifices. There will be sacrifices which with each and every dream, with each and every goal, and with each and every objective, you've got to sacrifice something. Your hands cannot be full and you grab more stuff without letting something go from one hand to grab the other. If I did not do I did 2023, 20 years of our lives, sacrifices we've made would have been gone. I also would have considered myself a failure and a quitter if I did not continue and pursue my dream of doing of finishing the Iditarod 2023. So that is the reason. And this year, I actually had a bigger purpose, a bigger drive, a bigger goal, and a bigger objective than last year. I want my belt buckle. And if you ask me later on the show, I will tell you a story about what I've heard about belt buckles. So that is my reflection on the um, getting stopped. I don't even call it a failure. Uh, a failure is just an event from the past. Um, we didn't fail. Mother Nature was just very much stronger than us. We had to retreat. And then we came back this year and uh, achieved our goal. Jeff, as I said, quote, Sean, it was a sweet victory. Mm. Man, I feel like you need to give this like motivational speech you just gave, you know, like you should, I want to, I want to record that, cut that like last minute out of, you know, you can't, you can't pursue your dreams without a little sacrifice. And, uh, that, that was a good, I'm all hyped up right now, man. You got me, you got me feeling the feels like, all right, what are my dreams? What do I want to do? All right, let's do it. You know I mean? You know, coming back to dreams, I speak to a lot of people and the people, uh, human beings, couples with, and I'm referring to most of my friends have children. And um, they say they also have dreams, but they have kids. They, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. 
It's supposed to be hard. It's not supposed to be easy. And in the same breath, I said, don't you think your kids will be proud of you if you move them around to pursue your dreams so the kids can look up at you more? Some people get stuck in a rut and they think life's just impossible. I'm stuck in a rut. I'm 55 years old and I still did the damn I did rot. I didn't grow up on a sled. I didn't have uh, uh, sled dogs. I grew up in the desert with uh, desert dogs and lions and uh, giraffes and then great white sharks in the ocean. Um, people just have to pursue their dream and grab it by the horns and make the sacrifices and take their family with. Your kids will be proud of you one day what you have achieved. We need more people in this world who just live the dream. Living the dream, dude. Absolutely. Like, I, you know, I got a couple of examples that come to mind that what you're describing. You're the first one, of course, but uh, my friend uh, Martin Early is running the Kobuck 440 uh, for the second time, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's also somewhere in that 50 year old range. Uh, and, you know, he's born and raised and, uh, you know, at a, in a, I think he's developed a farm, a dairy farm in New Zealand and, you know, sold off the farm. And what is his dream? He wants to run the Iditarod. So he contacts Jeff King. This is what I want to do. How can I make it happen? You know, and here he is out running the Kobuck 440, trying to get another uh, qualifier and, and, wow. Uh, some time in and he's a Kiwi, you know, coming up from, uh, from down under and, uh, and he's going to be out here running, running a, the toughest race uh, north of the Arctic circle here in tomorrow. And hopefully that'll lead him to run. And I did run and it'd be fun if you two, I'm sure have a lot in common and it would be fun for you to talk to him at some point. Um, but also like someone like Kelly Maxner, who's like uh, an established, uh, I believe pediatric dentist yeah. has like four or five kids, you know, yeah. and a property and he had his own kennel and now he doesn't, but he, you know, got to uh, pay Dallas to take his uh, all-star team out on the, and get sixth place. You know, like if you look at his, his life, you're like, man, that's got a lot going on. Five or four kids or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it's just two kids, but it looks like five. Nice. When I see them, but uh, you know, it's just, yeah, people, there's a, just a load of these stories of people that you're like, how the hell did they pull this off? Just getting to the damn start line. And that's what we'll always repeat here on this show and anywhere in the mushing community that getting to the start line <laughs> is really a lot more difficult, uh, than getting to the finish line, you know, getting to the finish line, of course, it's really hard. And of course, yeah, there's a thousand miles of trail through the wilderness of Alaska in the dead of winter. Yes. But to get a get at 14 dogs trained up and ready and all the thousands and thousands of pounds of dog meat cut up and ready to give these dogs throughout the training of the winter and and, you know, finding a, you know, it, there's just like it's a miracle. And the, the fact that the race gets put on is a miracle. You got 22 checkpoints. Half of them are villages. Half of them aren't. You know, it's just, there's, there's just, it's amazing that people get to the start line. So I'm done talking. You talk now, you can talk uh, to your heart or Brendan. Okay. 
Gerhard, if you have a response to that, I'll let you take over. However, I do have several questions I want to ask you as well. I just have a quick, I just have a quick response to Sean. Um, he, I couldn't have put it better. They, so few people actually realize what goes into getting to the start line of the Iditarod. Reflecting back now, once again, I'm just a rookie from Africa. Reflecting back, running the Iditarod, the eight to 14 days is the easy part. The hardest part is getting to the start line. That's including your qualifiers. And if you're lucky to have done your qualifiers in one season, that will give you two years. Other people do it in three, four years, that, which they keep on pushing and pushing and pushing just to be at the start line of the Iditrod. And if you look at all these veteran Iditrod mushers, man, I take my hat off to them all. What sacrifices are they doing year in and year out to compete in that race? I mean, each of us, on each of them, all of them have their sacrifices and they all have a goal. It's you understated. Go, you, got, you got a goal, you got to make sacrifices. I mean, you look at like Ali Zirkle ran 19 Iditarods. You know, she only she had a like a unlucky spill on the last one, but finished the first 18 races. Martin Boozer, 39 starts, 39 finishes. You know, people fans take that for granted. I think I think like I am as guilty of taking it for granted as any fan. I'm not I'm included in this. You know, when I see someone like Pete Kaiser running his whatever umpteenth I did a ride. Um, 14th, 14th, I believe. Damn. All right. Yeah. So, you know, it, I just think of that like, yeah, that's a given, whatever, you know, but I'm now Pete's out there. We guys got, got a great support system and everything, but man, you know, he's flying his dogs every year to Anchorage from the middle of nowhere in Southwest Alaska, you know, just to, for him to even just literally just to fly his dogs there. And, you know, he's got a, one or two or three extra steps more than anyone else who lives on the road system in Sterling or in Willow or in Fairbanks or whatever. So yeah, we take, I, t I personally, it can at least say for me that I take for granted people like Richie deal, Pete Kaiser, Nick Petit, uh, you know, these guys that are competing in the race every year, you know, and they don't take a year off. And I mean, that's just like, I don't know. That's uh, pretty amazing to be able to pull it off time and time again. And this is Brendan speaking. I, you know, like I can't help but think that in order to get this dream off the ground um, of running the Iditarod and a lot of those folks you just mentioned are all people that have their own kennels. It's like once you're that deeply invested into it, I feel like it would be really hard to like pull the plug on that, you know? Uh, and I don't know if you have anything that you want to uh, add on that too, Gerhardt, but you know, like I would imagine like Pete is getting tired of doing this. He's got kids, same with uh, Richie. Right. But 
they have the kennels and I feel like it would be hard for them to just stop doing what they've been doing. Like the, the system that they've created is uh, like, it's already in place. They have the dogs, they have, they have everything they need. They just have to run the dogs, I guess. I don't know if, if either of you have anything to add to that. I, I've got to agree with you, Brandon. I, I don't have my own sled dogs. I don't have a kennel of 100 or 200 dogs or even 50 dogs or even 30 dogs. And it's hard for me to walk away from it. I know I'm going to have withdrawal symptoms somewhere in October when I see the uh, termination dust on the Alaska mountains, or you can see, you can feel the bite in the air. I'm going to miss the hookup. So I'm going to, for this year at least, um, I can, these veteran mushes, with all respect, they've got a different kind of drive. Um, it's like, I can imagine put myself in the shoes of a, um, a school football coach. Um, the kids graduate, they leave, there goes half your team, and now you've got to bring in youngsters. And, and the challenge is to see how these youngsters are going to perform. And it's the same with these kennels where they have dogs coming in, young ones, um, two-year-olds just finished Iditra, those two-year-olds will be part of the A-team. And uh, it's just... It's an addiction. It's uh, once you're in there and the smells and the sounds and the energy of the dogs, which is a great part of why you cannot let, it's hard to let go. Even people that say they're going to not do the Iditarod for the few years, I don't think they get rid of their dogs or um, their dogs is part of them and they are part of their dogs. It's, it's, uh, it's a unit. It's, it's hard. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I'm like, I'm now a couple years removed from my last race and I'm, you know, every, every race I'm like, ah, oh, how can I get back into, into this thing? And now I'm like, I'm like, all right, you know, Gerhardt's like, you got a dream. You got to make some sacrifices. So, you know, I'm this, I'm only 31. I could, you're 55. Yeah. Dude, I got 24 years to fucking figure this out. You know, I, I think I get, I think I get back out there. We'll see but what happens. But whatever dream or goal you have, just don't be so stupid like me taking 22 years. You can do it in a few years. Okay. All right. That's a deal. I'll do that. That's a deal. Yeah. So then, yeah, what's, I guess, what's, uh, you know, what's your next dream? What's your, what's next for Gerhardt? You're going to take the next year off from my dinner ride, it sounds like, and maybe you'll be back. Maybe you won't, whatever. No, but uh, what's, you know, what's, what's, what's uh, life for Gerhardt looking like moving forward? I have I have another adventure in mind, but uh, I'm not uh, gonna uh, promote that as yet. I want more information on it. It's also another uh, dream from maybe more than thirty years ago. I've seen on TV and I've seen it live. Um, that is, an, it, it's another challenge. It's another, a lot of sacrifices. I have not even told my wife what it is. <laughs> okay. The uh, so she knows I'm full of surprises and uh, she's always my best support system. She just jumped this, jump in the car with me and there we go with our three pet retired uh, sled dogs. Um, 
Next year, as I said here, I'm not going to do the Iditrod, but I cannot speak for the future. I might be back. I might not be back, depending on my next adventure, how long is, how long is that going to keep me busy? But there is something in the pipeline, and uh, uh, I will make it public maybe later, uh, once I got more clarity about it and how am I going to do it. And uh, for each and every adventure I do, I the most important for me is I have to figure out the big why. Why do I want to make the sacrifices doing that adventure? Um, I'm still figuring out the why. I have an idea on the why, but I need clarity, volume, substance and depth in the why it had to make it has to make a change and it has to make a difference the why in my life and other people's life before i um start with a new adventure and challenge i love it that's beautiful this is brennan speaking um, <laughs> that uh, that's awesome um so i guess like you had this dream of running that Diderod 20 years ago, as you say, and you ultimately, you and your wife moved to Alaska like three or four years ago. Can, can mm -hmm. we just talk a little bit about, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of want to connect the dots. Sean's probably more familiar with your, how you got to Alaska story, but I'm not. And I, I have a, a feeling some of the listeners would be just kind of interested in you know, you don't not necessarily like the crazy details, but I'm just, you know, tw let's talk about 20 years ago. What happened 20 years ago that made you think I want to run the Iditarod? <laughs> okay. I, I'm from the belief. Now you're going to give me time here. I'm going to take it long back to 2002. Um, I believe happy wife. Happy, happy life. life. Amen. My wife wanted, now we're living in South Africa. We're living actually, I was actually a, uh, a restaurant manager in uh, Durbanville, which is a suburb of Cape Town. And my, um, by that time, me and my wife were living together. And she said, I want a Siberian Husky. She needs to be black and green, blue eyes. I said, happy wife, happy life. Okay, let's get the Siberian Husky from a breeder in Johannesburg. Then now we got the Husky puppy. Then we met people, um, they are actually Siberian breeders, Andre and Natalie van der Merwe. And we became good friends. And then one day Andre said, Gerhard, let's try this mushing thing. And I said, what mushing thing? What do you mean? He said, yeah, we're gonna put this. These are Siberians, they are sled dogs. Uh, they belong, they are an Arctic breed. They belong in the North Pole, um, but they, they are working dogs. Their job is to pull sleds. We don't have sleds in South Africa. We don't even have snow, but um, we can hook them with the same harness and a gang line. We can hook them in front of a two wheel scooter or a bicycle or a three wheel car, and they can pull us down dirt roads. So we started doing that, right? Now the group, if it was just me and AJ, my wife, and then Andrea and Natalie were there, they had around about 12 dogs. They were a breeding kennel. 
So there we go. And then we got two more Siberians. So now we've got three Siberians doing this uh, thing on dirt roads. They call it dry land sledding. And then normally it was a social thing. So the group grew bigger. Before we could open our eyes and realize what's going on, there were 20 people Saturday and Sunday mornings on dirt roads joining us at five o'clock in the morning. The sun isn't up yet, giving their pet Siberians exercise, all having harnesses, all having cars. Normally, when we're done there, we'll go to Andre and Natalie's place and we lit a fire, open wine, cold beers, and just barbecue for the rest of the Saturday afternoon. And this is where I got tricked into the Iditarod. So there we are uh, talking about the Iditarod. That's the first time I've heard about the Iditarod. So google.com of .com era came into perspective. I got onto the web and I ordered my first Iditarod documentary. After getting the Iditarod documentary, we all got together and we all, I mean, every, all the Siberian people, we watched it. Now, you look at the Iditarod documentary, Sorry, my phone is going off. You look at the Iditarod documentary and you see all the nice stuff. Really the, um, the good stuff, the nice scenery, how the dog teams are moving. You hear the mushers talking. They tell you what the hazards on the trail, but here we are sitting in South Africa. Now also picture the scene. There we are sitting in Cape Town, South Africa. It's 120 to 130 Fahrenheit outside, looking at, um, with a cold beer in your hand, looking at the doc, watching the documentary. And then you have the boozers and the CVs and the Kings and them Lance Mackeys frosted up, frozen up, having interviews at checkpoints. And at the bottom right of the screen in green, they normally mention or show the temperatures like 40 below or 55 below. And then you sit there with your cold beer and your swim shorts and say, so you laugh and you say, I can do that. And that's from the beautiful scenery of the Iditarod documentaries. That's how we got, I got tricked into it. And that's also where I looked at my friends, but that was after like two bottles of wine. I said, I want to do the Iditrod one day. Everyone laughed. I did it. So in 2010, we moved to America. I said, time for sacrifice. We're going to go to America. We applied uh, through um, Sledog Central. There was a machine kennel in Michigan looking for a, a living couple. And um, so, yeah, we ended up in Michigan for 10 years. We got our green cards in 2020. Um, the people we worked for in Michigan, they were also our green card uh, sponsor employers. After you got your green card, you also get your freedom in the United States. And then I told my wife, okay, now let's move to Alaska. And uh, that's why we ended up at Mitch CV, which is also another funny story about how we ended up at Mitch CV. But anyway, so um, there we are in Alaska and we did our qualifiers. And uh, I hope that answered your question from way back 20 years ago, Brandon. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think that is incredibly beautiful how it started and how 
you had a community there in Cape Town that blink of an eye, you've got 20 people that are waking up, running dogs. I think that's just, I love hearing the, a lot of times it's like, okay, someone had a dream. They wanted to run the Iditarod and they, you know, they went about doing it, but hearing a little bit more about the foundation as to why you wanted to do it. That's just, uh, I love that story. I think that's great. And, uh, ultimately you made it to Alaska, you linked up with Mitch and Mitch has been able to help you carry out this dream. Has he been the main musher in Alaska helping you or has there been, uh, have you worked with anyone else? Mitch has, um, Mitch has been great for, I've been with him for three years. He's, he taught me everything I needed to know. Um, he's my mentor and he's my coach. And uh, I don't think it would have been possible without Mitch because um, if you do your thing, if you do your, if you bring your side, he'll bring his side. And uh, he made it happen for me to get my qualifiers, all three of them in one season. I was very, very lucky. And that's another story. When I got here, I didn't even have a dog team. So a lot of stories there, but uh, Mitch is the main guy who made this all happen. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then uh, I guess lastly on this journey story, I do have two other questions, but so you've run the Iditarod now, you've accomplished this dream. You just talked about how you are contemplating another 30 year dream, even aged even more. This is going to be even like aged like some fine, fine wine here. <laughs> um, so what is your plan? Like, are you going to continue to stay in Alaska? Are you thinking about going back to South Africa? Is that still to be determined? We are actually leaving on April the 10th, me and my wife and uh, my three dogs. I call it my three kids. We are leaving Alaska and we're going to take a long drive through Canada, um, ending up in Michigan, where we're going to work for the summer in the restaurants there. Okay. Uh, that is the short term. And during the summer, I will uh, do some research on my next adventure and find the why for my next adventure. And then um, that's where it ends. I don't know where this road is taking us. I don't know where the journey is going. I know where the end is. And uh, we all know where the end is. That's the time when we step off this uh, human train. And uh, and that's what making our life so interesting. We we just life is a journey. We're looking for uh, detours to take. We're looking for left turns in the journey. We're looking for right turns in the journey. We're looking for ups and downs. And we're just gonna take this journey um, one day at a time. Man, um, I do not have much. Me and my wife, we actually do not have, we don't even have a place when, which we can call home. We don't have a fixed address. We all, we both have each other and we have our three dogs and we have a little SUV. And, um, and, and 
we've got hard work, good work ethics, and we can find work anywhere. And that's where we're going this summer to work there in the restaurants and just live out our dream and plan our next adventure and, and take it from there. And I, I, I've got no idea. Um, some people at my age already are, are retired and they're building their cabin by the lakes. Oh my goodness. I don't even have a cabin to live in. So, um, and that's 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 our fun part to answer your questions. Going back to South Africa, no, I would love to stay in America. Um, we are legal permanent residents now, and we plan to retire here in America one day. Um, we will. We have not been back to South Africa since we came here in 2010, but we do plan a trip this year to South Africa too, which is also another adventure. Take, it, uh, take a few uh, months or so off and just go visit uh, our family in South Africa and take a road trip and, and uh, miss our country. Nice. Man, this is, uh, I love this is the, such like, a cool story, dude. I I'm, love I'm, it. I'm, dude, it's like, you know, everybody's got this. There's like this cookie cutter, like life that you can live. And that's kind of how I felt like I was set up to be. and. And now, you know, you're like, okay, you, but you could, the other option is you could be 55 and a Diderot veteran. Maybe you don't have more than a few bucks to your name, right? And maybe you don't have a home that you can call a permanent residence, but dude, you're out here. Like people, people that are 55 and they've retired already are looking at you and they're like, whoa, you know, I can still do a lot. You know, there's still time, you know? And, uh, and man, that is just like, I sometimes it's just good, man. You kind of pull me, you're helping me just kind of pull myself out of whatever I think my problems are and my plans are. And I don't, you know, I don't know this. I'm sure I'm not going to be the only one. I'm sure Brennan could agree with me. Uh, you know, this like having talking to you is very, uh, you incredibly know, incredibly, I think I'm going to have. Yeah, refreshing. And I think, you know, my life, even if it's just for the, the next 36 hours, or maybe it'll be for the next 36 months. I don't know. But I'm just, I'm like, all right, man, let's get my shit together. Like, what are we doing here? So yeah, it's it's fun hearing hearing your journey and where you might be going next and gonna go make some make some money, dude. That's kind of a crazy <laughs> idea. Gonna go make some money. I bet you you're gonna be. Like, you're like, I, that's what I've been doing, trying to make some money. It's like, you're not sure as hell not making it training for the Iditarod, I'll tell you that much. Sure and, as and, hell you're not. And so what has been the, like, talk about your fundraising. Have you been saving up for 20 years working? Have you, I know you have your GAT Foundation. Uh, you've got, you know, probably a couple, Mitch has sponsored you. Of course, he's fronted a lot of the money, all that dog food year round and, you know, um, some the harnesses and the sled and the, all those things. But what has been, has it just been like a potpourri of, of, of help or what, you know, how did you fund the several tens and tens of thousands of dollars? Okay. Yeah. When we came to America in 2010, now, I'm not going to play. Uh, oh, we, we each had two suitcases and uh, our three Siberians. And uh, we might have had maybe one or two thousand dollars on our name. That's it. 
Damn. My, my house is sold in South Africa. My business is sold in South Africa. Um, that's the money we had. Maybe one or two thousand dollars. I'm not going to say like uh, other immigrants that came in with fifty dollars. No, we had. We had. I'll, let's run it off and let's be very conservative and say we had run about two thousand dollars. That's 2010. So we got a job. We got an income, and uh, I worked at the kennel full time. I couldn't leave. Uh, my wife had to do. Sometimes she had to do like three jobs at a time. I was doing three jobs at night, uh, leaving the dogs. I would go bartend during the day. I will cut fields for someone else, mow lawns for extra money. Um, my wife worked. Uh, she also, after when I got my two degrees, um, I never used them. Um, while here in America, I studied. And uh, my wife got her veterinary uh, assistant diploma. She worked at the vet during the day in evenings and weekends she will go uh, serve tables in restaurants she will go clean houses um, that was the past 10 years uh, we never had weekends off we just look at the fun side of um, in america it's easy to make a living compared to um, i've got experience living in third world countries and you america is it is easy all you got to do is get your ass off that couch and start working, go wash cars, go mow lawns. You can make it. You can make money by doing that. In third world countries that you cannot, it is not that easy. And so for 10 years, we just, I wouldn't call it work. Um, I would, I'll call it, we just had fun accumulating dollars. And uh, we lived our life. We lived outdoors. We lived healthy. Um, yeah, we drink our beer. I like a good scotch. I mean, I'm not the... Uh, uh, the saint here, um, but we we kept busy accumulating dollars and uh, by doing our jobs, and then we and then in 2010 we came to Alaska and I worked for Mitch for um, Sean will know what um, mushes get, and um, we get uh, boarding and lodging and uh, not many dollars in your pocket because um, they give you. Uh, they pay you less because they give you the privilege of running their prime dogs and the privilege of being in the Iditarod. And um, uh, for my first Iditarod, I leased a team that used a lot of our saving money and a few sponsors. My GAD Foundation, the donations coming in, I don't take anything, not a single cent from my foundation. All my money goes to my causes. Um, so that is just to uh, collect the money from the fans and thank them for their donations. And then I write a check to currently we are associated with TASC. It's an organization by His Royal Highness Prince of Wales. He contacted their organization, contacted us to be their ambassador on the Detroit. So thank you, uh, Prince uh, William for contacting us and uh, that is how our resources went. Um, we just keep on, I don't like to say the word work. Work sounds so heavy. It's you gotta make it lighter in life. Uh, I just say accumulating dollars. So we keep busy by doing hard stuff. And uh, you gotta, if you wanna shine like a diamond, you've gotta be cut like a diamond. And uh, I'm still busy. We are still busy being being in the, in the cutting process. Um, as I say, that's it savings i love it your philosophy Damn. your perspective is i love it i'm glad that we we've had you on and uh 
And uh, I, I know that what you're saying speaks to both Sean and I for sure. And I'm sure other people that are listening as well. Hey, Brennan. Yeah. Hearing Gerhardt talk like that. I don't know. I'm not going to speak for you, but he makes me feel like a little bitch. You know, he's just like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll do three jobs and this and that and keep a good attitude. And I'm like, I do like a, a few like I do. like I work like four days in a row and I'm like, God, dude, I'm fucking tired and uh, tourism sucks and whatever. And then, you know, I'm like, wait a second. Yeah, dude, America rocks. And uh, yeah, you can get a lot of good paying jobs and make your way, you know, with uh, not very much, you know, you can, you can make your way. And uh, yeah, I, you know, if some of my little problems, like, gosh, I need to put away some of my, you know, clean my room or I need to go get, you know, a new vehicle or this or that, you know, you're like, Oh man, your heart just are, said, get off like, your ass, dude. Just get off, get your, off ass, your ass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Hey, I wanted to ask both of you. Do yeah. you guys, uh, do you remember when you both met each other? Is there a fun story there? Hell yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. Dude. I, so in 2020, uh, fall, Dallas and I took 30 something dogs and we went to Mitch Mitch's place because you, uh, uh, that time you, you cut your hand with a knife. Oh yeah. Oh, that, oh wow. 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 You hook up dogs, you damn idiot. Yeah, I was trying. So it's, I'm, I'm, I, this comes back to, I am kind of a little bitch. All right. So I, <laughs> I was like, Cutting before before I meet Gerhardt, I'm like trying to cut a neckline off of the gang line. You know, this is the gang line is what you refer to as your the entire line of 12 team dogs is all connected to one rope. And then there's a bunch of smaller lines that attach to that or whatever. So I'm taking take a neckline is one of those not lines that's attached to a gang line. I would go to try to cut the gang line off. And like it's literally the first rule of scissors. All right. The first rule of scissors. It's like, maybe don't point the scissors at yourself when you're cutting something. Okay. And sure enough, I did. And then like they slipped and went like right in between in the skin. That's between my thumb and index finger. That's like, uh, you know, it went like in like parallel with my hand. It didn't like stab, you know, it didn't stab. Yeah. So it kind of just slid in like right above my thumb about an in, at least an inch or maybe as much as two. And then I just pulled it right out and it was gushing blood. And, but it was a small, it was a small opening, but it was really deep, you know, like an inch or an inch and a half deep and my just muscle. And so I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't use my thumb for a few weeks. And then like, a, like four days later, we went to Mitch's and I was, you know, I was one hand, which isn't that bad, you know, like, but I couldn't really hook. You can't really hook up a dog with like one hand all that quickly, at least, you know. So I was really leaning on help from Lara. And uh, and I would just kind of drive with one hand. And then like maybe one of the dogs would like accidentally step over the neckline. And I'd be like, hey, Lara, go fix that. <laughs> she go fix it for me. I'm like, man, I'm useless. But it was cool because she was just learning. And I was kind of teaching her things about running dogs. Anyway, so I got there. And we're and the reason we went to Mitch's is because we have limited trails in Talkeetna in the fall. And at Mitch's, the fall training 
trail system is like much yeah, smoother on the dog's feet and and on the ATVs. And it's just a you guys have a lot of nice trails there. And on top of that, like just like human beings, dogs can get bored running the same trails over and over. And so that it was very stimulating for them. Um, and so we spent two weeks. I got to meet Mitch and he invited us up for dinner that one night. That was great. But every single night, you know, Dallas would go up to Mitch's and, you know, do father son things or whatever. I don't know. And I was staying in the handler area in the garage. There's a little room there. It was, it was a nice room. And it was just me at the end of the day, it'd be me and Gerhardt and Lara, but she was, you know, 18 or 19 and she's, you know, Gerhardt and I, we would had a lot of like, we'd just be sitting on the porch outside drinking a beer and talking dogs for like two hours straight. You know, we did that pretty much every night for like two weeks and it was super fun. And, you know, that's, the kind of the that's my perspective of the story yeah gerhard what's your uh what's your recollection of things i i looked at sean when i first met him and said where uh how does he come from man, <laughs> man, excuse me but i'm military background with short hair and here comes this dude man he's just hair is hanging down his shoulders and i said this dude he cannot run dogs with that long hair I'm gonna make him. I'm gonna make him drunk, and I'm gonna cut off all his hair while he's passing. Well, never, that never happened. Um, but that's the kind of story, Sean. Um, people look at their checkbooks, but those kind of stories. I don't want to have lots of money when I die. One day when I die, before I die, I would like to have lots of stories, and that's the kind of thing which makes us rich. Uh, it's just, I mean. Please, I've got nothing against, uh, well, I love rich people. Um, they worked hard for it and everything. I'm just reflecting back uh, on our lives and said, yeah, that's, uh, that's Sean over the long hair. And uh, then uh, he'll, he'll play some cribbage, which he tried to, he tried to teach me cribbage. But I'm not the brightest uh, peanut in the packet. I mean, after like five minutes, I lost interest with my ADDs with that uh, damn, damn game. And I <laughs> said, no, I'm, I'm done. And that's how I remember Sean. I said, this is a funny dude with the long hair. The, the guy that almost taught you cribbage. <laughs> listen, listen, Gerhardt, you're not alone in that cribbage game. I, I visit Sean uh, my first time going to Alaska to visit Sean. So we're sitting in, in, uh, in, in where we're staying and Sean's like, all right, let's play some cribbage. And I've never literally never played it in my life. And Sean proceeds to show me how to play and then proceeds to absolutely wax my ass. And I was just like, well, that was, that was a lot of fun. And then we, we, we played a few more times throughout like my visit and each time it got worse and worse. I was like, I don't think, I don't think cribbage is, is for Dude, me. We're going to get it. I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to, you're going to have to sit down and I don't want, you know, you got to have my, I want your full undivided attention for 40 minutes. That's all I ask. It's uh, most of the time people that don't learn cribbage, they just get distracted. You know, it's a lot, it's overwhelming at first, but you give me two games and I got you, dude. I got you. Go ahead, Gerhardt. 
Yes, I'm here. What happened? Okay, oh, no, no, we were no. just talking talking shit about cribbage, honestly. Um, well, cool, man. Uh, if you're coming through Anchorage on your way out of town, let's grab a beer. Absolutely. Where are you now? In Anchorage. Serious? Oh, yeah, dude. If you need, a, like, a bed to crash on or something, you let us know. We got to. Oh yeah, here. of course. When we uh, when we come when we come to Anchorage, I'll definitely we can uh, we can go out for a beer and a burger. Of course. Heck yeah! All right, it's a it's a plan. It's a plan. Well, I don't like to plan, but that sounds like a damn good plan. Yes, you said uh, April tenth. Uh, yeah, April tenth, a Monday. We're leaving. Oh, April eleventh, and uh, you know me, I. Uh, I like discipline. I like order. I like uh, things arranged. Uh, but we might leave on Monday the tenth, or not. We might leave Tuesday the eleventh. This might no be in July. Order. You know, who knows? Yeah, because my first, uh, <laughs> we're starting work in Michigan on May the first. Okay, nice. Okay, so there's there is a there is a, a cutoff that you have to leave at at least by a certain time. Yeah, yeah. They only give you a certain amount of days to travel through Canada. Uh, well, sweet. Yeah, this has been great, Gerhardt. Uh, I I really uh, have enjoyed just listening to you kind of tell your story and your your your. You have a very unique perspective that I think a lot of people could grasp onto some of those philosophies that you have. And uh, just thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. Sean, do you have anything you want to add? Um, yeah, you know, I think uh, GatFoundation.org, if you, Gerhardt's got, uh, maybe you go ahead and is there ways to follow your story of what you've been through and what you will be doing or, you know, ways to help you out or anything? Yeah, ways people yeah. can support you. Absolutely. Um, my foundation is called uh, Gat foundation i'll spell it for you just a g-a-t and the g-a-t stands for gerhard and aj aljo tia that's my wife so it's get g-a-t foundation um our purpose is to raise funds for a the canines the dogs of the wildlife rangers in africa so the whole theme of 2023, I did write, was for dogs, by dogs. So my group of sled dogs raised money for the uh, dogs of the wildlife rangers protecting our wildlife in Africa from poachers and that kind of stuff. So any kind of support, ladies and gentlemen, go to gadfoundation.org and everything you can find is on there. You can contact me. My phone number is there. My email address is there. Please do contact me and just share your story with us.